Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of The Cryptid Corporation, representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest this week is David Weissman. David Weissman is an Emmy Award-nominated filmmaker, teacher, film programmer, public speaker, and longtime activist. He's best known as the producer and director of the acclaimed documentary, We Were Here, from 2011, and The Cockettes from 2002, which he co-directed with Bill Weber. Both films received nominations for Independent Spirit Awards for Best Documentary of the Year, and We Were Here was on the shortlist for the 2012 Best Documentary Academy Award. And it is my pleasure to welcome this week to Revolutions Per Movie, David Weisman. Hi, David. Hi, Chris. How are you doing on this beautiful Sunday morning? Good. I'm actually still in my pajamas, so... Yeah, it's it's legal. I, I I'm not going to tell you, but I think there's a fifty percent chance I am. <laughs> okay. So, before we get into talking about the cockettes, I feel like so much of this film leading up to it is about your line in life in terms of um, what you got to experience in L.A. before moving to San Francisco. Can we break that down a little bit? Can we go back to like your teenage years and all the access you had to the amazing music and um, I guess you would say, you know, like, was it the psychedelic scene of the LA scene, like the the Sunset Strip and things like that? Well, you know, I'm 60, I'm about to turn 69. And so at, at this vantage point, one sees life with a kind of a different perspective than when you're living in in the middle. And I've increasingly realized how lucky I was to grow up when and where I did grow up, which was in L.A. in the 60s. I was born in 1954 and, you know, in a liberal Jewish family in West L.A. And, you know, I was exposed to so many things from a really, really young age. I was the youngest of three. So my two sisters were, you know, both, uh, you know, passed on things to me that they were going through. I also went to a Jewish summer camp in L.A. that was very left wing and all the counselors were, you know, growing their hair long, and it was very, very political in all kinds of left-wing politics. So from a really young age, I was exposed to the emergence of the 60s as it was happening. Um, you know, even as a as a six-year-old, I was wearing a JFK for president button uh, to, I don't know, first grade or whatever. So it was, you know, these are things that you take for granted when you're living them. Right. But, uh, you know, now I look back and I go, oh, yeah, I did not live the same life that, you know, most other people lived in that period. And and part of that growing up in L.A. was, um, you know, it was a time of, of so much uh, not only explosion of new music in L.A., but also, I mean, in the whole in the whole culture. But there was also a, a discovery of uh, all kinds of American roots music that had been, you know, uh, ignored previously. And, you know, there was the folk music scene that was happening in New York, um, which, again, I was aware of Bob Dylan contemporaneously. You know, I was eight, 
you know, eight, nine years old. And I, you know, saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 1963. But um, so there was this mix of the of the emerging kind of folk music and and topical folk music, political music kind of stuff, the emergence of rock and roll, really, um, uh, as a kind of a distinct artistic medium. And also there were all these people who were digging into Appalachian music and Southern blues music and Chicago blues music that had been not very high profile. Right. And uh, that also started to really influence the culture. And um, so I got all of that stuff was very much part of my youth. And um, being in L.A., I got to see an enormous amount of music, really starting from, you know, my first rock concert when I was 13, which was seeing Jimi Hendrix at the Shrine Auditorium. And you also saw like a lot of blues legends and people, like you said, who were kind of getting their dues in the 60s, correct? Were coming through LA and playing? Yeah, there was a great club called the Ashgrove run by a guy named Ed Pearl. There were two places in LA that were sort of both in West Hollywood um, that uh, that played a lot of folk and, um, and roots music, as well as the new music that was coming out. The Ashgrove was sort of the more left-wing more funky kind of place and was more focused on American roots music. And, uh, you know, there's lots of political events that happened there. They were bombed a couple of times by right-wing Cubans because they were having, uh, you know, uh, pro-Castro meetings there and stuff wow. like that. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, again, when I look back on that time, I think, how did I have enough time to see all these people? But yeah, I mean, I saw... Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and uh, Lightning Hopkins and J.B. Hutto and his Hawks and and Buddy Buddy Guy and Junior Wells and wow. uh, uh, you know Doc Watson and Merle Watson and Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs. I mean, all these people who played all kinds of both um, you know kind of white bluegrass mountain music and uh, black blues from both the Chicago. Uh, urban blues scene as well as the the southern delta kind of blues and a lot of these people were just so inspirational to the rock and roll generation um obviously people like muddy waters you know had a huge influence on you know the rolling stones and right all the british bands who were completely enamored of american blues well it's interesting i've had a couple of people on the show who really benefited from having an older sibling who could really enlighten them at a young age and share with them um, really openly, like the culture at a, and they were brought into this, you know, anywhere from eight to 14, whether it was the punk rock scene or the, you know, uh, psych rock scene or even the visual art world, something that they just didn't have exposure to. I am the older sibling and I tried to do the same thing. I remember my brother who owns a record store now in Portland. I remember being like, you got to listen to this Doors record and don't come out till, you know, I was like 12 and he was like seven or something. And I thought I was going to blow his mind with this thing. But well, I would imagine for your generation, it was more of a conscious act. I don't know that my sisters necessarily thought that they were mentoring me in any way. Okay. I think again, this was just the times. And I was, I guess, unusually receptive. Not all of my friends were as interested in this stuff that I was. And I also started to realize that my friend circles started to change. Like, for instance, uh, when I was in, in just at the beginning of eighth grade, which would have been late 67, 
I, I was every week in the mail, I was getting these um, hand-built postcards from the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco. I got in their mailing list. Like they would send out mailers? They were mailers. Not only that, they were all all the addresses were hand typed, and they were all basically mini versions of the big posters that are oh famous. Oh my now. god! All of those famous posters. So my sister got me on the mailing list. You know, you could just <laughs> send them a, a note, and they're all hand typed. I don't really know how they were done. They're not. There was no stick on labels. Right. There. So I don't know if there was a room full of stoned hippies that were addressing things, but I still have them. I probably have fifty or seventy five of these little wow handbills from Fillmore going back to sixty seven. And I noticed that my friend Paul, or maybe he noticed that I had them. And he was like, who are you? And where are you getting these things? And we became good friends because we realized we were like among the few people in our 13-year-old age group who knew what was going on in the Bay Area. Right. So there was a kind of a, uh, uh, you know, the friend groupings started to shift as people sort of moved out of aspiring to be part of the jock crowd and started to aspire to be more of of what was the emerging counterculture crowd of 13-year-olds in my junior high school. Amazing. And uh, so, yeah, the sisters, the sisters, not only the older sisters, but also their circle. Yes. And, um, you know, through Friends of the Family and stuff, I remember the first time I heard the first Country Joe and the Fish album um, at a friend's house. It was a, a friend of the family. And that became a hugely important album for me, Electric Music for the Mind and Body. And also, uh, my oldest sister, Debbie, moved to Berkeley to go to college in 1966. So this was, you know, prior to the Summer of Love uh, in San Francisco, but uh, just prior to the Monterey Pop Festival and stuff. And she started going to the Fillmore and to the Avalon Ballroom in 66, before these places had really hit high profile. And um, uh, I remember getting a tube a cardboard tube in the mail one day. I think this was probably in December of 1966. And it was the very first poster I'd ever seen from the family dog from the um, uh, you know, the two main concert halls in hippie era San Francisco. And I still have that poster. That's amazing. And um, so those, those kind of things were revelations. And the other piece of it was the experience of going to record stores as a kid. Because, you know, the record stores were always there and you'd look through albums, you know, and, you know, you bought 45s of the of the top 40 singles and things like that. But, you know, in the, in like 1965 or 66, again, I'm 11, 11 years old here. Uh, you started to notice the album covers were changing. And instead of being, you know, like, you know, uh, whatever sort of innocuous portraits of the artists or all of a sudden they were weird, you know, they were strange yes. art or they were, they were, you know, solarized images of the bands that made them look all kinds of weird. I remember particularly um, Freak Out, the Mothers of Invention sure. album cover and also Jimi Hendrix's um, Are You Experienced? And, you you know, you in a, what I think of is like a is like a teenage boy going in and sneaking a look at a playboy, the kind of surreptitious <laughs> experience of getting excited and like sneaking a look at a playboy. And I remember looking through album covers at the record stores and it was like, wow, you know, these people are weird, you know, and it was very, very exciting to see this kind of cultural shift happening in real time. Yeah, record stores were also really vital for me. I had that same electrifying experience of, um, I mean, my first record I bought when my 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 dad get, let me and my younger brother pick out a record each. I got um, 
Cheap Thrills by Janis Joplin because it had a Robert Crumb cover, right? So same thing. All of a sudden, I'm like, look at all these cartoons on this cover, gooey eyeballs and really strange uh, little vignettes. And he picked a Tina Turner album because it was just like explosive on the cover. But I think the visual thing really carried over into the new wave punk thing. So when I was starting to buy my own records, seeing something like The Clash or Devo, it was just the, the album covers were vibrating with imagery that I didn't even know what I was looking at or the context. That was really magical for me, too. Yeah, yeah. But I have to say, young man, <laughs> by the time you were looking at the album covers, they had already been getting weird and become art things for a long time. Oh, of course, of course. I and mean, I, yeah. I think that moment in the 60s where really everything was emerging that was really new. Um, right. You know, and very, very heavily that was influenced by psychedelics. Sure. By the emergence of psychedelics in the younger generation. And, you know, pot, I would put pot into the same category because all of those drugs were about undermining our sense of normalcy and bourgeois society. But that was really happening on a society-wide scale and it started to be reflected both visually and in the music uh you know and and i remember just being so enthralled by that as a you know as an 11 12 year old so what gave you the gravitational pull to move to san francisco and leave la well after high school i didn't go to college um and after high school i lived in venice beach which was a very kind of magical beach town it was one of the only urban beach communities that was for poor people. I mean, it was, uh, and it was a very mixed community and uh, I loved living there, but it started to feel a little squeezed by gentrification in, in 75, 76. And I think as a gay man, uh, I've, I finally discovered gay San Francisco in the, in the mid seventies. I mean, I was aware of it, but I think San Francisco in my mind was always the kind of hippie destination um, you know, which appealed to me. It, it always was a a kind of a Emerald City of Oz for me, even when I was really young before I realized I was gay. But then as Venice started to gentrify, San Francisco um, expanded its appeal when I started to understand that there was so um, uh, extensive a, a gay counterculture up there that was very politically radical, creatively radical, and so it was a, a very expansive time for me to move there in the 70s. Right. I made a documentary with Bill Weber about the Coquettes uh, in 1998. But the way I first learned about them was when I was living in Venice Beach and just kind of a hippie kid. And there was a, a docu not a documentary. There was a film made called Trisha's Wedding, which was a parody of Trisha Nixon's White House wedding that was hilarious. And it was it was made by the Coquettes, directed by their manager, Sebastian. And that that really was a revelation to me um, uh, because it was so it was these all these gay hippies on LSD parodying the Nixons. And it really helped me feel comfortable being a gay person. And, um, you know, I was very already uh, enmeshed in the lore of hippie San Francisco and the communal uh, lifestyles there and the alternative lifestyles that were being explored in that period in San Francisco in a way that I think was kind of different from any other place. It was so embedded in the in the, in the um, uh, daily life of every aspect of San Francisco. So um, when I moved to San Francisco, 
I very quickly met a circle of friends who were sort of what I would call descendants of the cockats. They were all sort of more radical, somewhat gender fuck, um, lefty, creative queers, most of whom were on ATD, which was aid to the totally disabled. You would pretend you were insane and get welfare from the government. Yeah. John Waters talks about that in your film. Yeah. And it was such a um, it was it was still very cheap to live there. It was still very cheap to live most places. I mean, housing was not so um, crazy of an of a part of someone's economics at that point. So there were a lot of group houses that I don't know if they called themselves communes in the same way. I think a lot of the early 70s communes had to some degree diminished by then, but some of them continued for many, many years afterwards. But it was definitely the the countercultural ethos of the 60s and early 70s in San Francisco continued to deepen in San Francisco in a way that was unique, um, whereas a lot of that stuff was sort of rapidly fading um, elsewhere. Yeah. And, that, and your film really, you know, touches on an element of that where you had if you wanted to get your car fixed, you went over here to this commune. If you wanted child care, you went over here. If if everyone pulled their money and their food stamps together, they would get that they'd have a food collective over here. And what was the name of the there was a there was one house where people dressed in 20s fashion. That house, well, the dressing up, I think, was it was inherent in, in so much of the communal scene in San Francisco, partially because people were buying going shopping in thrift stores. And I think uh, Fayette talks about this in the documentary about that because everybody was, you know, psychedelicized and, you know, dropping out of kind of mainstream aspirations, um, they were living very cheaply, but also were very aesthetically motivated. And you could go to thrift stores in the 60s and early 70s and find all of this fantastic stuff from the 30s and 40s and 50s that had been cast out. You could get for nothing. So people were the whole notion of dressing up as part of your countercultural identity in that kind of psychedelicized environment was very much a part of that whole era and particularly so in San Francisco. In the film, Peter Minton, who was the pianist for the Cockettes, he talks about a commune that he lived in. But I think it was south of San Francisco that, you know, they were all completely you know, uh, fanatics about things from the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, Fayette has a great quote in your movie where uh, they say, I just discarded everything that was even a remote remnant of my suburban past. It completely got into velvet and lace, and we completely communicated through drag. Well, I remember even in uh, high school in L.A., which was, I think, probably when my friends and I started, you know, buying our clothes in thrift shops. Um, you know, it was a lot of flannel shirts and, you know, old jeans and stuff like that, Hawaiian shirts. But the the idea was that it was old stuff and that it, you bought it really, really cheap and it had a particular kind of a look. But I mean, I do remember that a lot of the girls in my kind of high school gang who were powerful young women, you know, very kind of strong willed and uh, independent, a lot of them would buy these old um like 1940s fur coats, like mink coats that you could get for like $3 because they were moth-eaten and stuff. And so what one of the looks that I remember was, um, you know, these barefoot, you know, young women, young girlfriends of mine in really, really baggy, torn Levi's, no shoes, T-shirts with no bras and fur coats. And it was just part of the, you know, this kind of look. Well, let's let's get into, let's talk about the cockettes and the movie. 
Okay. You know, the film does open with kind of almost the beginning of the end uh, of the Cockettes, which is their trip to New York to perform, you know, in 1971. Opening night, there's heavy hitters showing up, you know, Warhol and Ginsburg and Anthony Perkins and John Lennon. And then you're like, oh, it's Angela Lansbury. It's like really like everybody had heard the Cockettes were coming to town. And then you kind of back up and you get to hear the genesis of how this all came together. How would you describe to somebody who is not familiar with the Cockettes what the basis of, of their work was? The Cockettes started essentially with this guy, Hibiscus, who had been grown up in a theater family in New York that was very involved in off-off-Broadway theater in the 60s. And he's actually the person who's in the very famous photograph from the demonstration at the Pentagon in the 1960s that's putting a flower in the gun of a National Guards person. I couldn't believe that 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 was the same. That was amazing. It's such an important photograph. Yeah. Well, we were sort of amazed, too. Uh, (laughs) I did a lot of research to verify that that was true. Believe me, because I had doubts. Um, But. Anyway, he he was part of the hippie migration to San Francisco. His older brother, Walter, was in the original Broadway cast of Hair. And um, uh, I'm still very much connected with Walter and the whole family. Uh, uh, He was George Harris at the time. and He got involved in this commune called the Cauliflower Commune, which was a kind of a very highly ideological commune that uh, was promulgating notions of uh, living completely outside of the money economy. In this commune, he was sort of encouraged by the leader of the commune, Irving Rosenthal, to kind of explore his wilder creative self. And he emerged as this character, Hibiscus, who was very um, theatrical on the streets, and but he would dress in robes and, and, and wild, you know, branches in his hair and kimonos and lipstick. And it's amazing. A very amazing creature on the streets and and was described as kind of like a Pied Piper. And uh, this whole like underworld of kind of hippies who love to dress up all kind of got to know each other through meeting through various communal houses and on the streets and stuff. And so one New Year's, uh, he sort of got invited to do a little show, to bring friends and do a little show at the Palace Theater, which did midnight movie screenings called the Nocturnal Dream Shows. Uh, and they thought, oh, let's have a little show on New Year's Eve. And so Hibiscus and a bunch of these friends got together at the at the Cauliflower Commune, where there was a whole closet full of costumes and wild clothes. And they dressed up and someone came up with the name The Cockettes just for that night. And basically, that's how it started. They did a little kick dance. And, um, and it was such a sensation because they really were breaking gender conventions in a way that was brand new. Right. You know, guys in beards and long hair with dresses and, you know, and, you know, it was men and women and it was gay and straight. And but they were just this crazy kind of sexually playful, gender bending, you know, group of acid heads on stage. And that essentially was how it started. And over time, bit by bit, increased the the well, sort of professionalism of their shows to the point where they were writing original uh, completely original material and performing them again, mostly as part of the nocturnal dream shows at the Palace Theater. How did you get access to Hibiscus's book of collage of dreams? And he he basically was saying, "Let's make a book of of just desires and dreams. Let's create on stage what's in this book." Well, when we um, 
first were starting to explore the idea of this doing doing this movie, we went to New York to look at an, an archive that was held by our friend Robert Cronquist of his uh, deceased dear friend and partner, Martin Warman, who had been in the Cockettes and had been working on a PhD thesis um, that he never finished because he died of AIDS. So Robert's archive was the first place we looked. But also on that trip, we met with Hibiscus's family. We met with his mother and father, Anne Harris and George Harris. And I think there was one or two of the sisters there. And they had this big trunk of stuff. I mean, they had a big can of 16 millimeter film. Our eyes popped out, you know. Wow. And, uh, you know, these were we were just beginning to explore. And they had this beautiful, beautiful scrapbook that he had made of, uh, you know, as was described by Fayette in the film was kind of his ideas for shows were were kind of uh, elaborated in this scrapbook. And it's a remarkable, remarkable document. It's all been made into a PDF and, and preserved. I'm not sure who actually has the 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 um, scrapbook itself, but it was a really a wonder to behold. I mean, the that's creat- incredible. The creativity that was flowing through that generation, again, very much um, influenced by psychedelics, was remarkable. You know, they said they brushed their teeth with drugs at one point. <laughs> but could anyone join the cockheads? Like, where was the line drawn in terms of, oh, you can't be in it, you're not talented enough? Or was it like, just if you want to come up and just be part of this thing, you you can be in the cockheads? There was no leadership, per se. And I think people kind of jumped in and out for different shows and stuff. I think it was pretty anarchic. But also, I think to some degree, the the way people recall that era and tell stories to some degree is a little bit mythologized. Okay. So what's exactly true and what's not. I mean, that someone would come and, and, you know, sleep with a cockhead and then they'd be in the next show. You know, there's probably some degree of hyperbole there, but also probably some basis in truth. But it was a very, you know, again, this was such a, these were a bunch of like, you know, it was like Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney or the Little Rascals. It was a bunch of kids just totally having fun. And so it wasn't, there wasn't the kind of seriousness around, um, uh, you know, everything had to be perfect, which it never even approached being perfect. One of the things that I found very amazing, I mean, part of part of what didn't go right, a lot of things went wrong for the Cockettes when they went to New York. But part of it was a very big aesthetic difference um, between New York and San Francisco. Yes. And one of the things there's there were a couple of audio recordings of Cockette shows from the time. We I think we used a tiny bit of that audio in the film, not a lot of it. But one of the things that you really, really felt was the relationship between the audience and the people on stage. And part of what you felt in those things was you could know that the person who's singing this song really pouring their heart into it. Sometimes they were totally off key. Sometimes they were probably a little bit mentally off and a little bit crazy and out there. And the audience just roared their approval. And I think that was the San Francisco sensibility of really honoring the the freaks letting it all hang out. In a way, it was the the degree that you were willing to go there that was appreciated more than necessarily the quality of what you delivered. And that was a very San Francisco thing. It's the same ethos that essentially allows 
people that motivates people to go to three dead shows in a row and right. two of them will be funky and the last one will be great <laughs> because you, part of the appreciation there is that you know you're seeing something that's happening in real time it's not overly pre-planned you're not seeing a show that's ever been done before you're not seeing people that are super slick you're seeing people who are taking risks and who make mistakes and some people are open to that and some people are not i think it's definitely part of what made the shows in san francisco so great is because the audience loved if the you know if the sets fell down or if somebody couldn't remember their number or you know that was part of the fun of it there's a great quote where somebody says um hibiscus drew people in he drew together the dumbest and the smartest of us and it just like it did remind me of the little rascals it's like oh this person's going to knock this prop over there's one where they have three brides of frankensteins um, in a performance because everybody wanted to be the bride of Frankenstein and they were like, all right. But in the film, people are like, this person was kind of the best bride, you know? <laughs> um, what are some of the titles that 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 they had for these things? Because some of them are just incredible, like Gone with the Showboat to Oklahoma. My favorite one is uh, Tinsel Tarts in a Hot Coma. Tinsel Tarts in a Hot Coma. It was like a review of like songs from 30s, uh, and it was a mess. And unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, that's the show that the Cockettes decided to open with in New York. They brought two shows with them. One was Tinsel Tarts and the other one was Pearls Over Shanghai, which was their most elaborate and most original and really a, a fantastic show. Um, and they should have opened with Pearls Over Shanghai. But yeah, Tinsel, right. Tinsel Tarts in a Hot Coma, uh, Journey to the Center of Uranus was a great show. Um, uh, Les Etoiles du Minuit, uh, Hollywood Babylon, I think was one. And, you know, they, they were makeshift, you know, they were pretty makeshift. And a lot of them were, you know, people saying, oh, I want to do this number from, you know, from this Hollywood movie. And they got kind of cobbled together into themes. And, and then of course, uh, at a certain point, fairly early in their first year, uh, supposedly Goldie Glitters, but uh, there's always lots of stories, but Goldie Glitters, one of the Coquettes, brought a friend from L.A. who was this uh, uh, African-American drag queen named Sylvester. Yes. And, uh, Sylvester shows up and Sylvester at that point had come out of, uh, you know, doing a lot of Sylvester's interest was in in standards in in, you know, Billie Holiday stuff and things like that and dressed very much in that era. And so Sylvester became a part of the Cockettes and Sylvester would, you know, do these kind of 40s or 50s, you know, blues numbers and uh, show tunes in this unbelievable falsetto and bring down the house. And I think Sylvester eventually got frustrated when they went to New York. It Sylvester performed as the opening act and was not in the show itself. Okay. And Sylvester would get <laughs> New York got these rousing ovations and then, the you know, everybody would walk out and. <laughs> At least the first, at least opening night, which was a disaster. But so Sylvester was a big uh, influence of the Cockettes. Um, and, you know, it's also important to remember because people think of the Cockettes, they can think of the Cockettes as being a gay male troupe. And there was uh, straight men in the troupe. There was a lot of women and it was also racially mixed. Yes. Um, there was four African-American people in the troupe. Uh, you know, that were significant players. So it was a it was a pretty mixed uh, group. I want to talk a bit about the New York, San Francisco 
um, I don't know. I don't know if you call it the scenes misunderstanding each other or not appreciating each other. We were talking about how we've seen the the Todd Haynes uh, Velvet Underground documentary and how Mary Warnoff is just like, we went to San Francisco and they didn't like us and they're just like, they're just a bunch of fucking hippies. They're just so dismiss- dismissive and so full of anger. And you watch the film and you're like, well, maybe she's right. And then you see this film, everyone's just being so hard on the cockettes and so uh, snobby and pretentious and they weren't even they just weren't even giving them a chance to do their own thing they were just judging them out of the gate it felt like I mean it, in a way it feels like it'd be hard to succeed in New York with the kind of energy they were wanting to bring and kind of the childish um, playful stuff they were doing that was like not strict professionalism there's a great uh, chapter in Tom Wolfe's book um uh, the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, mm-hmm. uh, which is about Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters on the West Coast and, you know, the early acid days in San Francisco, about the pranksters on their psychedelic painted school bus, like in 1964, like really proto kind of stuff, showing up at Timothy Leary's place in Millbrook. And it was the East Coast LSD scene. Leary was a Harvard professor. He was kicked out of his job because of the LSD stuff. But he had this whole little compound up in Millbrook, New York, where he was doing lots and lots of LSD in different kinds of experimental situations. And on the West Coast, you had these crazy, you know, <laughs> pre-hippie people, uh, who were, you know, right. putting acid in Kool-Aid. And the pre-Grateful Dead musicians were, you know, playing weird music all night long and they were kind of free-for-alls. So what that story in Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test recounts is that they did not connect well the leary people were very serious and you know controlled in their lsd stuff at least according to wolf and the west coasters were like these you know crazy running around naked um you know in dayglow <laughs> kinds of spirits and they didn't like the leary people at all right. so i think that the way the 60s played out in new york and the way the 60s played out in san francisco were very very different obviously there were underlying elements of that time that were connected to the Vietnam War, connected to the emergence of the music scene, um, you know, and psychedelics, of course. I think of the New York 60s as being very much defined by the Warhol circle. And these were not idealistic people at all. I mean, they weren't driven by dreaming of a better and new world and dropping out of society and making communes. I mean, they had very different kinds of motivations. And San Francisco really was the the kind of beacon for young people who really wanted to be free and to explore the more positive aspects of what that would mean and had no aspirations whatsoever in terms of fame or, um, you know, uh, cultural recognition. I mean, I think what did happen in San Francisco with the bands happened by accident, not because you know, the bands were looking to make it big. Also, L.A. was very different. The Laurel Canyon scene was not the San Francisco scene. You know, that was very much connected to the music industry. So it was just, it was very different. I mean, I'm, people always assume because I'm, you know, kind of a uh, outspoken Jewish person that I grew up in New York. And, you know, I grew up in L.A. and I, I, 
As much as there's aspects of the New York uh, history and scenes, both of the 60s and 70s and 80s, certainly the, the art scene in the 80s in, in New York. And, and I'm a West Coaster. I mean, I'm very much of an idealistic person. I appreciate the, um, the aspirations to higher calling, you know, through a psychedelic lens uh, that San Francisco represented. And it, it was just different. A, a kind of a different uh, New York has always been much, much harder. San Francisco people came to San Francisco to be free, whether they were coming to be gay, coming to get away from their religious backgrounds or their small, the small town mentality. New York always, even for gay people moving to New York, there was always the underlying uh, aspect of career. Right. You know, San Francisco, you came to drop out in a way. Yeah, the, there's great interviews with John Waters expressing how it was the first city that really celebrated Divine and him. And uh, didn't Divine also perform uh, some, with the Cockettes? What happened was, um, I guess John had made multiple maniacs and he sent a copy of it. He, I guess he'd heard about the Palace Theater and the Nocturnal Dream Shows. And so that, the you know, Sebastian, who ran that series, loved multiple maniacs. And uh, he said, yes. And can we get Divine to come out here? And uh, and uh, Divine, Don tells the story that Divine was still basically living as Glenn Milstead then. Right. And so Divine came out and yes, and Divine did a little performance and then subsequently came back and performed uh, with the Cockettes. Uh, Divine was at the closing night performance in New York, but uh, Divine was uh, in the Cockette show post New York called Journey to the Center of Uranus and Divine played a giant crab in that show and sang the song a crab on Uranus means your love <laughs> and um so yeah so Divine was very much and John moved to San Francisco I mean he came there in that period from Baltimore and I guess he must have gone back and forth to some degree because he continued to make movies but he became part of a commune there called Flow Airwaves okay and Flow Airwaves was next door to a commune called Hungadunga, right. uh, which was mentioned in the movie. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many interconnected stories there. But John has always professed to kind of hate hippies, and um, you know, it, you know, I hope he hears this because he's he's a hippie at heart, even though you know. Even though he pretends that he hates hippies. Yeah, no, I could see that. I can see that. I mean, you look at the early photographs and it's just, yeah. It did, again, it had a playfulness. All those early, I mean, well, you know, all most of John Waters' work still has that playful thing of let's put on a show, kids. And, you know, let's do this by the seat of our pants. And there's just a, an amazing energy that runs through it that you can get from the Cockettes, too. So it's kind of amazing that that both those these scenes of film and fantasy Broadway can-can musicals met at that time and crossed paths. Well, I mean, here's a story. I don't know if I've ever told this one before. Um, right at the beginning of when Bill and I decided, let's look into this, um, someone said to me that they had heard John speaking somewhere and he mentioned the Cockettes. Um you know, this is, bef again, before anyone knew who the Cockettes were, because uh, they were still just sort of forgotten at that point. And it turns out John was uh, in Berkeley at that point, working on the sound mix uh, at the Fantasy Studios building. They had a lot of sound facilities. And I had done a bunch of work there on my short films, and I knew the people that ran the facility. 
And so I called my friend Scott Roberts and I said, hey, is John Waters working over there? And he said, yes. And I said, could you do me a favor? I said, could you just write a little note on a piece of paper that says I'm making a film on the Coquettes with my name and phone number and hand it to John? And he said, sure, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And within 10 minutes, John called me. Amazing. And he said, I'll do anything I can to help you. I love it. He said, I'm so glad you're doing this. And that was one of the very, very first um, uh, really affirmational moments. And so he was the first interview. Well, he was the second interview we did. We did one with Sylvia Miles, and then we did the one with John Waters. What about the other interviewing the people who were part of the Cockettes or Hibiscus's mom, who also later did performances with him when, you know, uh, when she was older as well. Was it easy to get access to people and have them be really open about it? Or wh- what was your experience with that? A lot of these people had lost touch with each other and didn't know where other ones were or who was still alive. So a lot of the initial process was, first of all, finding people, again, some of whom had been completely out of touch with other members of the troupe for 25 years. Oh, amazing. So first it was finding them, it was contacting them, and then it was trust building, which I've learned very, very, very early in life that it's an important thing to develop trust. And certainly when you're going to be making a film about people's history. And I had some reason from uh, to be concerned from a prior project on a different subject matter that people might not react well to the idea. Um, but pretty much all, except for one, were very, very immediately like, oh, what a great idea. And um and then the, one of the really lovely things about it was that this was an opportunity for many of them to reconnect with each other um, in a way that they had not for, for decades. We, we made a commitment early on that any uh, significant member of the troupe that was still alive would be in the film, regardless. Right. Um, we just felt like that that was the honorable thing to do. And... Um, you know, we wanted to film them as lovingly as as possible. Who is the person who is like painted all over in their interview and they're in the day glow room? In the film, in the film, he is listed as Jalala, which was the name that he was known by then. He goes by Jet now, and he was part of the Cauliflower Commune. He was like a core okay. power person in the Cauliflower Commune. That footage is amazing. He knew hibiscus. Um uh, you know, when he first came to the commune as George and, you know, was present and party to his evolution into hibiscus and was, you know, very devoted to and enamored of of hibiscus, who was, you know, both very beautiful and very, um, you know, creatively inspiring. Right. Uh, he, uh, J- Jalala never performed with the Coquettes, but he's sort of integral to the story and to the evolution of both hibiscus and the split with the uh, between Hibiscus uh, and the others and the founding of the Angels of Light. Can we talk a little bit about Angels of Light? Because that I heard about them through the punk and post-punk movement. There were like Winston Tong from Tuxedo Moon and Stephen Brown and Tamata DePlenny of the Screamers were all part of it. What made the Angels of Light different than the Coquettes? Well, Tamata DuPlenty was also in the Coquettes. He was in the Trisha's Wedding film, um, Oh, I, I didn't earlier. Yeah, he plays the maid. Wow, he must have been really young. He was part of a tomato. Was part of a group uh, in Seattle called the Whiz Kids, and they were kind of a okay. Seattle version of the Coquettes. And they, they kind of intersected at some point. 
So some Cockettes went up to uh, Seattle and performed with the WizKids and Tomato came down and performed with the Cockettes and was in Trisha's wedding. So he's, Tomato was on in every imaginable scene. You could, you know, he, you know, he was such a, uh, a translator and a great spirit. Um, yeah. When I moved to San Francisco in 1976, I saw my first Angels of Light show in uh, probably January of 77. It was a show called Cyclones, um, spelled S-C-I like science and then uh, clones. And it was the most extraordinary theatrical experience I'd had in my life until that point. And then I saw a number of other angel shows over the next few years. And I still have to say that I have never subsequently seen any theater that lived up to the experience of seeing the angels of light. They were the most remarkable uh, theatrical experience. Yeah. I could have ever imagined. And, you know, they, they emerged out of the coquettes, but Hibiscus left the San Francisco Angels quite early. He was there at the beginning, but a few key people came in right, right, right at the beginning. I guess there were people who had seen coquette shows and were enamored of Hibiscus. And these were people of enormous talent, enormous complexity. Uh, very, some of them were very impacted by the Cauliflower Commune, and some of them were just total acid-taking, drug-taking artists who couldn't really manage or find family anywhere except San Francisco. And San Francisco really drew a lot of people like that who were brilliant, completely brilliant in one way or another and utterly dysfunctional by normal uh, American uh, social conventions. And so they they formed these various communes. There were various Angels of Light houses. But, you know, you'd go to an Angels of Light show and there'd be like 50 tap dancing penguins on stage. And I mean, there were very elaborate, both in terms of dance and sets and costumes. I mean, there was a very famous, um, uh, well, someone who became a very famous painter named Martin Wong, uh, who's really become celebrated in the last uh, number of years with some major shows. And he was working with them doing sets early on. And I mean, their their shows were were absolute spectacles. And the idea was that they were free. And often the idea was, at least in the initial shows, they also fed you. Oh, my God. So there were these big kind of events where you would get free food and then, you know, all these kind of amazing, you know, San Francisco people would be in the audience and the stage would, the curtain would rise. They were often done like in junior high school auditoriums. And you would just gasp because, you know, you had just never seen a vision like that. And they were really, really, really beautiful, uh, those shows. How many shows were they making a year? Well, the angels again. Most of them were on aid to the totally disabled, so the, and they lived very cheaply. So they were living in communal houses. None of them had jobs, and so they were always giving you know classes in tap dance or Indian dance or okay. different kinds of theatrical things. So they're they're the angels' lives were were art and theater basically morning till night with a tremendous amount of substance uh, ingestion of various kinds. <laughs> so, all through this. Some of it was very problematic. It was a lot of sure. angel dust and a lot of alcohol. Um, but, they, you know, it was all art all the time. And that was, you know, really one of the amazing things about that period of San Francisco. And so they would do the big shows. They had, a, I don't know, I probably saw five or six, you know, big shows uh, up until the early mid 80s. But they also would do cabaret shows that were small shows um, in their 
little, you know, uh, uh, rehearsal space. So there were lots of Angels cabaret shows, which I missed, and lots of Angels affiliated shows. But these were these were people who just lived for art. Amazing. Uh, all the time. And, um, you know, it was a difficult bunch of people. And some of them still can't get along. You know, they're still going in and out of friendship and stuff. But I still, I mean, I look at the pictures and whatever little filmic evidence exists. And I think, yeah, I'm not, I'm not over glorifying my memories. Those were really, really, really unbelievable. I'm really curious about the influence of the Angel's Light and the Cockettes on the punk scene, which is only a few years beyond this. Do you see a line between what they were doing and putting on their own shows and and their own style of dress and freedom into that scene? Or, or were they pretty separate entities? Well, what's interesting is that as the punk scene sort of started to emerge in San Francisco, a lot of the people in the Angels completely got involved in that and their aesthetic changed like overnight. <laughs> um, and uh, there were a lot of people who very quickly started performing in the punk scene who were very core members of the Angels of Light. Particularly, there's a, a woman uh, named Esmeralda who I still think of as one of the greatest performers I've ever seen. And she she immediately started, you know, she bleached her hair white and, and uh, started doing these incredible performances uh, that were, you know, at the Mabuhay Gardens and the various other venues that were sort of the core of the San Francisco punk world. So the Angels kind of uh, stayed very current. I don't know that their shows that they were doing themselves necessarily had a more punky aesthetic because their their aesthetic were, you know, were so diverse, the things that inspired them. Each show had a very, I mean, there was a show called Holy Cow, which was sort of, you know, a kind of a, you know, based in kind of Hindu themes that, you know, through a kind of a campy psychedelic uh, frame of reference. And then there was a show called Tales of Hollywood Horror um, and Hotel of Follies. And these were just totally different kinds of theatrical things that were not based in what was going on in contemporary culture. Those, it was theater. But but a lot of them, again, just aesthetically, there was a group uh, uh, called the Wasp Women um, that was... Uh, all Angels of Light. It was Rodney Price, who was a core member of the Angels and three of the Angel women. And you know, they were they all had these huge pointy breasts and intense makeup and crazy wigs. You know, the, the Angels had a lot of women who would be identified essentially as female drag queens. I mean, they would dress up like extreme women like gay men would. Right. And um uh it was very much part of the Angels world. And the Wasp women were totally punky. Um uh, they were great, you know. Fuck you, you queen. You act like a machine. <laughs> and, then, na, 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 na. and then you have <laughs> Sylvester, who became, you know, the queen of disco, you know, and, yeah. and created one of the greatest disco songs of all time. You know, you make me feel mighty real. And I had not put that till I'd seen your film that that Sylvester is that Sylvester. Yes, there's actually just been a release of... Uh, uh, of some recordings that Peter Minton made of Sylvester in 1971 in Peter's living room. Wow. Sylvester doing standards. I've, I've had the recording since we made the movie because Sylvester had sent us a, a quarter inch tape of it. Um, but it's being reduced by a place called Dark Entries Records in San Francisco. Peter, Peter sent them the file and it's been released and it's, you know, it's 
Sylvester singing Foggy Day in London Town and uh, uh, um, God Bless the Child and all these songs, you know, in Peter's living room in 1971. Incredible. So it's now, it's now publicly available. And it's really quite remarkable. I'll put um, links to the film and links to that in the show notes to this right. this episode. Right. Um, the, the the film kind of winds down with their show in New York. Um, I mean, I guess you could say it was a bomb. I guess you could say, but there was amazing footage of people coming out of the theater just being like, "That sucked!" Like they were pissed that that uh, just how bad they thought it was and i thought that footage was so incredible i don't know maybe it was a new york thing you know because i people i imagine in san francisco people are spilling out of this these theaters with the same shows just enjoy and laughing and these people had seen the same show and were like what a bunch of amateurs well i think everybody learned lessons by that i'm <laughs> People were completely naive on both ends of the spectrum. I mean, right. the reason it wound up in New York in the first place was that Truman Capote and Rex Reed saw them in San Francisco. And Rex yes. wrote a, a syndicated newspaper column about the liberated new gay theater. And um, and so people in New York who were pro producer types and promoter types thought, oh, let's bring them to New York. Now, these already are worlds that do not intersect. Right. And um, yeah, the, the the mentality from the very beginning was, you know, the pe there was people were not communicating. There were also a couple of other people that were involved in that specific situation that were a little less than savory that uh, that made some uh, things go not as well as they should. Uh -huh. But the Cockettes just didn't think about, you know, n what New York might want. And also they were brought into this theater that was three times the size of the palace theater. The stage was three times the size. They were performing at eight o'clock in the evening instead of at two o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, it was a, it, it was going from like a little underground, you know, party in San Francisco sure. into a scene that was being promoted as a, as a uh, you know, the this great theatrical production by people <laughs> who, who just didn't understand each other. And so, right. and, and bad choices were made on all sides. Um, you know, the Cockettes didn't rehearse very much. They opened with the wrong show. They borrowed money from Robert Rauschenberg to, yeah. to, 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 I don't know. I don't know if it went to sets or went to drugs or what, but. Basically what happened was, uh, I don't know. He met them at Max's or something. I don't know. And he invited them over yeah. to a party at his loft. They went to parties a lot before the show started. <laughs> yeah. He wrote them a check. He didn't lend them money. He just wrote them a check for a thousand dollars because he knew that they had no money. I mean, these people okay. are still living on welfare checks. And they were staying in a hotel in New York that was called the Albert Hotel, which, you know, was a flea bag. And um, uh, so, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I think that the same thing about the Burning Man that just happened in the desert, you know, where there was four days of rain and mud and suffering. It's like the great thing about something like that is people will tell stories about it for the next 30 years. <laughs> and, you yes. know, if they'd had a mildly successful trip in New York, it wouldn't have made for a great story or a great movie. Right. And so, uh, you know, it's part of the reason we start the movie that way. I mean, I think it's it's a cliched way to start a movie anyway. You sort of create a sense of the stakes and the importance of the story at the beginning as a teaser. And then you go back and you tell it chronologically. But we 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 started the movie just sort of with a sense of how um, excited everyone 
was in New York that they were coming. And and then we, you know, we don't tell what happened until later in the movie. And um, I had never really had any interest in making documentaries. Um, I, I mean, I'd never have lived my life with any kind of a plan or agenda or goal whatsoever. I've sort of stumbled through and, and luckily made good choices along the way that led me to where I am. And the Coquettes came kind of out of the blue. It came out of a conversation I was having at Cafe Floor in San Francisco with someone who had been in that film, Trisha's Wedding. He had played Lady Bird Johnson in Trisha's Wedding. And I'd known him for many, many years. And uh, we were talking about the Coquettes and sort of saying it's, you know, nobody really knows who they were, except sort of by vague recollection, except for people who saw them. And they had had such a profound impact on drag and gender and stuff but they were pretty unknown except by people who had seen them and that was the moment that the idea to make a movie came up and and i've said this a million times that what happened to me was nobody's going to do it if i don't yes. and if they do they'll, and if they do they'll do it wrong and so that basically was the motivator to um to make my first documentary. And I reached out to my friend, Bill Weber, who I had worked with on some projects. He was an editor of kind of high-end music videos and commercials, but we both shared a Grateful Dead history going back to our teen years. And I mentioned the idea to him of a film about the Cockpets. And he had, like me, seen Trisha's Wedding when he was a teenager. Wow. He saw it in, um, in, uh, in Kansas, a very different situation than me seeing it in LA. But immediately Bill said, oh, yeah, you know, the coquette seeing Trisha's wedding changed my life, just as it did with me. So serendipity kind of brought us together. And uh, for both of us, it was our first experience making a documentary. Amazing. The film also documents the the kind of the, the end of the coquettes, you know, after they come back to San Francisco and continue working for a few more years and you know, people are starting to die, overdoses, and it's getting a little less fun, a little more dark, the culture is. But I think it's also a, a classic story in terms of most things end, most creative partnerships do end. Uh, things that start out for fun often become work or, you know, it's just hard for them to get past something like New York, maybe. You know, they're just like, oh, I'm just... I, I feel different now. Like there's just a shift in in their um, emotive and creative core. And I've experienced that, you know, in, in projects. And I, I can't speak for you, but I think you capture that really well about just burning bright and hot and not thinking about where you're going with it, but just to be in the moment. And then, you know, sometimes reality comes crashing in. They actually had three of their most successful shows after New York. Uh, they were quite prolific, and and the shows were polished and original and fresh. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was a lot of drugs in that period in San Francisco. I mean, the the whole kind of Haight Ashbury community had sort of been taken over by hard drugs. Um, but that didn't mean that the scene, the the counterculture ended. I mean, that's the amazing thing about San Francisco is. The hate kind of emptied out. The hate Ashbury emptied out, but people just moved everywhere else into the Mission okay. Heights and the Castro and all and North Beach and all these other parts of the city. And the and the San Francisco counterculture in that spirit of idealism really 
continued to inform life in the city in deeper and deeper ways, well through the, really into the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s. Um, and uh, they did shows. A lot of these people continued to do shows together in San Francisco. But Divine did a show that she was the star of and Mink Stoll was in that a number of the Cockettes were in. There was a few shows that were done. But then other people uh, went on and continued to perform with um, the Angels of Light. Others, Rumi from the Coquettes, Fayette from the Coquettes, and Sweet Pam from the Coquettes, they wound up going to New York and getting involved very early with the people who then became the New York Dolls, the Ramones. Um, there was a group called the Palm uh, Palm Casino Review that so they got very connected with, you know, amazing with the early New York punk scene. Some of it before it actually happened. So right. it, it continued to fertilize both within the same people and spreading out into into other worlds. Oh, I think you've made this film I've seen so many times. I love this fucking film. And I was so excited to talk to you about it. Yeah. I, I end every interview uh, with the same question, but I, I tailor it to, to the film we're talking about. Um, so on a scale from 1 to 10, uh, with 1 being the lowest and 10 being the highest, and I know you made the film, but you can be honest, how many tinsel tarts in a hot coma do you give this film? Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like when they ask you, what, you know, rate your pain level on the scale from exactly. one to Exactly, it is. I love the movie and I, I've, I've watched it recently a number of times because we've been doing some restoration on it. I love the movie and I, like I said earlier, I think there's ways in which we would make it differently now, both aesthetically and in terms of content. Um, but that doesn't undermine the film as it stands for me in any way. I'm really proud of the movie. I feel like that it, I know that it's had a really big impact on some people who got to see it when they were really young and felt like outsiders and freaks and that it really helped empower them to become who they wanted to be yes. or who they thought that they had the potential to be. Um, so, you know, I'm proud of it. And I'm, I, I'm so grateful for the relationships that, emerged for me, particularly my relationship with Bill, my filmmaking partner, but also the incredible people I met through the making of the movie, Coquettes, people, you know, surrounding their world. Uh, you know, it's been a huge journey. At the end of the movie, Sebastian says, you know, I had a tiger by the tail and I couldn't hang on and I couldn't let go. And he said, but I wouldn't trade that experience for a billion dollars. Right. I would say the same thing. I also... Uh, it's it's been one of the greatest experiences of my life to it, to take this project on and all of what emerged through the uh, through the journey of it. I only know ten tinsel tarts in a hot coma, so I'm gonna give all ten of my votes. This is a, I'd say that okay. it's a, ten tinsel tarts in a hot coma affair. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time today, and it means a lot to me. Thank you, David. My pleasure. It was very fun to do. Okay, good to see you, David. Bye, Chris. Thank you for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday, so be sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it as well. You can follow us on social media at Revolutions Per Movie and also find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye.